that, that's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Now, unless Republicans in Congress do something about it, this Saturday night, at one minute past midnight, the federal government will shut down. And while the House Freedom Caucus is making radical demands and treating this all like a political stunt, that Saturday night deadline is very real in terms of the harm it could cause for hundreds of thousands of Americans. Now, I am old enough to remember the last time the government shut down because Republicans wanted something ridiculous. It was right around Christmas of 2018. The federal government shut down because President Trump demanded funding for a border wall that he never ended up finishing. And on Capitol Hill, it was a spectacle. But for 800,000 government workers, these antics meant 35 days without a paycheck. The New Life Worship Center in Capitol Heights is opening its doors to furloughed workers, providing donated food from grocery stores and church members. I'm with the Department of Commerce, and it, yeah, four weeks, no check. Many of the folks in this line have worked for the federal government for decades. 30-something years. And don't know what it's like to go without a check. That's how Nicole feels. I think I cry, like, every day. And this mom who works for the IRS. I have two sons and um, they know and I'm like, mommy's going to stand in line today for food, you know. Um, Never thought you'd be here. Never thought. And this time around, there are literally thousands of government workers who, if Republicans in Congress refuse to fund the government by the end of this week, who will face potentially devastating financial situations just like that. Yesterday, ABC News interviewed a cafeteria worker at the Library of Congress, a woman named Willie Jo Price. The government will go back and they're going to get paid. We're not going to get anything. We got to try to scrape by and you got to listen to the phone calls come because you haven't paid your bill. You haven't did anything. And I've been there and I've done that. I've been up on this hill for 42 years. I've been there. For workers like Willie Joe Price, a shutdown means no work and it means no pay. The money just never materializes. And then for another class of workers that we deem essential, it means they don't get paid, but they still have to show up for work. And that's going to be the case for roughly 1.3 million active duty U.S. military service members. Again, if Republicans in Congress can't get their act together by Saturday. Now, they would get back pay once this is all over, but it is unclear when this would all be over. The Federal Aviation Administration could be looking at a double government shutdown this weekend, and that's because Congress is also running up against the deadline to renew the law that allows the FAA to function in the first place. That means the agency would furlough more than 17,000 workers and force 25,000 to come to work unpaid. Now, you might be thinking thousands of workers being forced to work without pay. That is ridiculous. Why don't they just strike? Well, for the answer to that, you would also have the Republican Party to thank. Let me make one thing plain. I respect the right of workers in the private sector to strike. 
Indeed, as president of my own union, I led the first strike ever called by that union. I guess I'm maybe the first one to ever hold this office who is a lifetime member of an AFL-CIO union. But we cannot compare labor management relations in the private sector with government. Government cannot close down the assembly line. It has to provide without interruption the protective services which are government's reason for being. That was President Ronald Reagan in 1981, basically trying to have it both ways. Thousands of air traffic controllers all across the country were on strike, demanding better pay and better working conditions. But rather than negotiating with those workers, Reagan fired all of them. He literally fired 11,345 workers and banned them from federal service for life. Now, the Reagan chapter is relevant here because something that seems to have gone missing in the discussion about this potential government shutdown is that at its core, Republicans are willing to hold the country hostage like this because the Republican Party, broadly speaking, is anti-labor. You see that all the way from Ronald Reagan in the 1980s to Republicans in Congress today. The men and women who don't really seem to care about the impact their political stunts will have on hundreds of thousands of American workers. And that brings me to tonight. Tonight, former President Trump gave a speech to a crowd outside of Detroit that included some auto workers and a lot of Trump supporters. It comes after President Biden walked the picket line with striking members of the United Auto Workers Union yesterday. But even though what Trump did tonight may look similar to what Biden did, it is not. Trump is holding this rally, supposedly for union members, at a non-union car parts manufacturing plant. Trump, like Ronald Reagan before him, is trying to have it both ways. He is trying to make it seem like he's pro-labor. But if you think back to when Donald Trump was in charge, he appointed an anti-union secretary of labor, He appointed anti-union members to the National Labor Relations Board. He appointed tons of anti-union judges. And then he celebrated when they clawed back workers' rights. Here is Donald Trump this evening, the candidate who is tonight trying to convince American workers that he is the one who is really on their side. I put everything on the line to fight for you. I've risked it all to defend the working class from the corrupt political class that has spent decades sucking the life, wealth, and blood out of this country. Joining me now is Claire McCaskill, former U.S. Senator and MSNBC analyst, and my colleague and friend, Joy Reid. Both of you are my friends, host of MSNBC's The Readout. Thank you for joining me here on set, no less. Um, Joy, let me first just get your reaction to Donald Trump saying, I've risked it all to defend the working class from the corrupt political class. It, it, it is amazing, isn't it? I mean, so you can go, you went back to what he did when he was president. Mm-hmm. You can go way back. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm old school. So let's go back to the 80s. Yeah. Donald Trump, his prestige building, Trump Tower, was built with non-union, mostly Polish immigrant and in some cases undocumented labor. Those folks were underpaid and in some cases not getting their checks. And when they complained, Donald Trump threatened to deport them. Mm -hmm. That's how he's always felt about labor. How does he feel about the labor who works at Mar-a-Lago? He got one of them to commit a felony. And he's probably going to go to prison for a very long time. Walt Nada, who is another lower paid brown guy, non-organized. He used a lot of H-1B visa labor. 
on Mar-a-Lago. He likes low paid, a lot of brown labor, doesn't like to pay him a lot and isn't very pro them. So he's not even good to hit the labor who works for Donald Trump and his organization, let alone what he did when he was president. He's yeah. always been anti-labor. And yet, Claire, he has the audacity, the political cunning, I don't know what you call it, to go to a non-union plant and say he's put it all on the line for the working class. Donald Trump is, you know, he'll do many things that normal people wouldn't, but there is some kernel of utility to him doing this, which is he feels his message is somehow resonant with workers. Oh, oh, you know, we got to be real. Yes. The bottom line is a whole lot of white male union rank and file voted for Donald Trump, not just in 2016, but also in 2020. He is a marketing guy. He is marketing to their grievance. And they believe that Donald Trump gets them. Mm-hmm. That he somehow understands that they're working as hard as they can. They can't afford to retire on and on and on. The bottom line is what he did while president is jaw dropping anti-union. Yeah. He said he was going to save these factories. Alex, those factories shut down in states with union labor. And you know where they went? They went either to China overseas or they went to right to work states yep. where there are no unions. So it, it, they went south. They, and, and listen, I, I don't begrudge anybody who works hard for a living and those people who take a shower after work instead of, you know, before work, they are, have been the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. Yeah. We need to realize we need to do a better job communicating with them because Trump marketed to them and it worked. Right. Well, against all odds, against, against the record, odds. right? Yeah. Which is why, Joy, I mean, we all talked about it on our shows. Joe Biden on the picket line, like yeah. that wasn't just another photo op. Yeah. That is a line in the sand for yeah. an American president. And that is a signal that the White House is taking this very serious. And, and the thing is, that I think Claire makes an excellent point, because during the 2016 campaign, I traveled a lot. I was doing my weekend show. We went to Pennsylvania. We went to Ohio. We did these little focus groups. And, you know, there was one in which we had six labor union guys. Yeah. And four out of the six were hardcore for Trump. Part of it was misogyny. They didn't like Hillary Clinton. They had all sorts of conspiracy theories about her. They just were dead set against her. But to Claire's point, it was a cultural connection with Trump. And what was on television, you you turn on local TV in those states, it was that Man of Steel ad. I'm a bit obsessed with it because the, the, the Clinton campaign never answered it. And if you were a person who in some of these towns, the steel plant had been replaced by dollar stores. That was literally the story when we went to Ohio. And you have ads on TV saying those jobs can come back. We can bring back those steel jobs. We can put you to work again. And then they show all this sort of multicultural group of people. But it's speaking to the white working class guy who's already got resentment, who in his mind thinks it's something to do with Mexico and illegal immigration. Why my job is gone. And so I have a cultural connection to the guy who's saying I can bring the jobs back. He literally promised to bring auto jobs back in Michigan. The jobs went. He promised to bring it back in Indiana. The jobs went when he was president. He didn't do it. But he had that message that was actually very effective. And and Biden managed to get back and claw back a lot of that because he actually is a well, white working and, class. It explains person. Biden's candidacy in a lot of ways, Claire, doesn't it? Biden is the Democrat. I mean, as bad. Look at the Michigan 2024 matchup. You talk about Michigan. Trump and Biden are running even, right? Michigan's kind of one of those states that you want to win if you're running for president. The fact that Biden is the guy that can go, you'll people are going to look at that and say, how could they possibly be neck and neck at the same time? 
Biden is the Democrat who I think other Democrats think can go toe to toe with Trump in a place like Michigan, precisely because the hold he has on the non-college educated white working class is cannot it apparently can't be shaken, Claire. Well, and, I, I'm not sure about that. Or it seems, again, against the record of Donald Trump. I think the ad they put up is a good start. They put up an ad, a contrast ad, saying Donald Trump did all these horrible things to working people, and here Joe Biden actually delivered. Yeah. That's great. But they're going to have to kick him in the shins a lot harder. They're going to have to go repetitive and remind people over and over again in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, he did not keep his word. And if they if they can really make it simple and repetitive enough, I think we'll peel off some of those workers because once they're confronted with the reality, they know those plants shut down. That's yes, right. they, they know, know he didn't keep those jobs there. Yeah. They know we can't give up on competing with China for electric vehicles. They know that fundamentally we can't. And by the way, the Biden campaign has bought that ad on Fox. They are running that yes. very ad on Fox, which is really important. Which because, is what you need to do. Which is what you need to do. I think they have figured out some of the alchemy that the Clinton campaign really didn't have. I think they didn't take Donald Trump seriously enough. And that is why he won by very small margins in Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania. And, uh, and that's why and Biden Michigan. won in very small and, margins. Right, but he was able to states. claw it back. And the other thing is, when you look at Biden's trip that you know he took to try to stand with those workers, to stand with those workers, historic, look at the crowd around him. Working class does not mean just white working true. class no, voters. Those auto workers were men, women of every race. That is what the working class in reality looks like. And so there are cultural forces pulling the other way sure. with working class voters. And they have other concerns. And they know that when Donald Trump, he didn't keep that promise. They say, oh, he kept his promises. He sure didn't, not to workers. He was terrible for particularly union workers. And the last thing I'll say is... Biden is being very smart about pushing this idea of EVs, of making sure we switch to this te this technology. But a lot of those jobs are going to be in those moonlight and magnolia southern states yeah. where people get paid less money right, don't have union states. protection. But unions are really popular now. And Biden's message that you deserve to get paid more will also resonate in those states where they are lower paid and non-union as well. What about the people who, as of Saturday, may not get paid for their work, which oh. is to say federal workers, Claire, because the House Republicans, <laughs> in a mess of their own making, are now trying to pin this on Joe Biden. I, I think we have time to play this choice sound of Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy blaming Joe Biden for the impasse we currently find ourselves in. Why don't you sit down in a meeting? Why aren't you serious about making sure government doesn't shut down? The first thing I would do, I would sit down with us. I'm, I want to sit down with the president to secure that border. The Senate has not taken up the House um, work. So no, the president should step in and do something about it. Otherwise, government will shut down. What? Wait, what? The, the president already sat down with Speaker McCarthy. They hammered out a deal. And now Kevin McCarthy's people don't want to abide by it. I mean... In the broader context here, how damaging is a shutdown for Republicans right now, Claire? I think it's bad. Um, and here's the problem he's got. In order to keep the government from shutting down or to open the government back up, he's going to have to go to Democratic yes, voters. that's it. And that means he can't be speaker anymore. So right. I, I got here, Kevin, here's the thing. <laughs> it's going to be painful. Tear off the frickin' Band-Aid, confront those extreme people in your caucus and say, take me out if you can, but I'm going to do what's best for this country and frankly, what's best for our party. Yes. But he seems like he's really a bad negotiator and a really big coward. Do you, but do you, so how does it end? I mean, is the, do you think the shutdown's inevitable? 
I, I would be, I've always said, because I was there for many, many times when the government was going to shut down and it never did. Yeah. I've always said they'll figure out a way. This is the first time. I don't think they're going to figure out a way. I think it's going to shut down. I think he's going to have to get Democrats to open back up because I think the stock market and the ripple effect is going to be huge and he's going to own it. He's going to get it opened back up. And then I predict before we say trick or treat, we'll be calling somebody else speaker. <laughs> Whoa. And I interviewed Hakeem Jeffries, uh, minority leader Hakeem Jeffries tonight. He said all options are on the table. There is a chance that Democrats push a discharge position, petition. WWPD, uh, what would Pelosi do? She would say, I got that Senate bill sitting cooking right yeah, over there. She does. And he let's go learned from her he's ready to play discharge petition put through that senate bill with majority democratic votes and then that immediately triggers matt gates who wants to be governor of florida based on shutting down the government to say bye bye kevin you know who's the real speaker if hakeem jeffries solves this the speaker is really Hakeem Jeffries oh, anyway. Oh, boy. Or apparently it's Joe Biden, because according to Kevin, yeah. Joe Biden is the speaker. I'll tell you it's what, somebody it other than him. might not be House of Kev for that much longer. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> um, <laughs> can you just stay for the whole hour, ladies? I know you can't. You have other things to do. Claire and Joy, my friends, colleagues, wise soothsayers, predictors, <laughs> Halloween deadliners. Thank you for your time <laughs> and thoughts tonight. We have lots more this evening, including the growing list of Senate Democrats calling on Bob Menendez to resign and the non-existent list of Senate Republicans doing the same. I'm going to discuss the politics of all that with the great Steve Kornacki, America's sweetheart, who joins me right here on set later this hour. But first, House Republicans launch their impeachment inquiry into President Biden tomorrow. Their first step is figuring out why they want to impeach him in the first place. That's next. That? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. Okay, so House Republicans are kicking off their impeachment inquiry into President Biden tomorrow with a hearing titled The Basis for an Impeachment Inquiry of President Joseph R. Biden Jr. In other words, they are holding their first hearing to figure out why they are having an impeachment inquiry. As it stands, there are no new facts, no new evidence that links President Biden to any wrongdoing. But Republicans are moving full steam ahead and calling three witnesses. Bruce Dubinsky, a forensic accounting expert who was part of a Fox News report on financial records that House Republicans allege belong to Hunter Biden. Eileen O'Connor, a former assistant attorney general of the Justice Department's tax division who left office before Vice President Joe Biden was even sworn in. 
And Jonathan Turley, a Fox contributor who Republicans have called as a witness in several other hearings, including Donald Trump's first impeachment and Bill Clinton's impeachment 24 years ago. Joining us now is Democratic Congressman Dan Goldman of New York. He is a member of the House Oversight Committee and former lead counsel in Trump's first impeachment. Congressman Goldman, thank you for being here on the eve of what is sure to be an interesting series of events tomorrow. Um, Let me first just get your thoughts about the witnesses that Republicans are calling to the committee that you sit on. Are you what are your expectations Well, you would think that the basis of an impeachment inquiry would be the eight-month investigation that they have been doing and that we wouldn't have to have another hearing to talk about why they are having an impeachment inquiry. But as you noted, and as you can see from these witnesses, there are no fact witnesses here. There's no one who has any direct knowledge of anything that President Biden did. Uh, And that's intentional because there are no witnesses who actually will testify that Joe Biden has done anything wrong in connection with Hunter Biden's business interests. So this is a complete sham impeachment that they are trying to use innuendo, lies, and gaslighting the American people into believing that there is actually evidence when there is not. And what we expect to do as Democrats tomorrow is point out the sheer lack of evidence to justify an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden, not Hunter Biden, President Joe Biden. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because Democrats seem to have learned to ignore, though it may be a farce, to ignore the farce at their own peril, because Republicans have proved proven adept at spinning lies out of whole cloth, but poisoning the groundwater with them, if you will pardon the mixed metaphor. What is the Democratic strategy for those of you who are sitting on the committee and are going to be in the room with these folks tomorrow? Yeah, well, as you noted, I I led the first impeachment investigation, and you will recall um, we had 17 uh, witnesses, fact witnesses, who were deposed, and then we had public hearings with 12 fact witnesses with direct knowledge. That's what you do when you are fact-finding. If you go to the Judiciary Committee, then you have a hearing on what impeachment is and the law. You don't start with that before you have your evidence of impeachment. And so what we will be focusing on is emphasizing that what they are saying and what they are basing this on is either complete lies or gross exaggeration and misinterpretation of the evidence that they've gathered. And to be clear, They have gathered a lot of evidence. They've taken a number of hours of many, many witnesses of testimony. Uh, They have gathered more than 12,000 pages of bank records and 2,000 suspicious activity reports. None of it links to Joe Biden. And that is why this is a complete farce. Um, You you cite the volume of if not evidence, um, discovery material, if you will, that's been amassed in all of this, pointing to absolutely nothing with Joe Biden's uh, fingerprints on it, if you will, or in in, in any way uh, casting aspersions on the behavior of the president and the actions of the president. Uh, But, I, I mean, I guess I wonder, does the mere fact that Republicans can say we are having an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden do the work for the purposes of the Fox News echo chamber. And if that's enough, how do you really combat it? It it may. Um, You know, I I have asked to uh, appear on Fox tomorrow after because I think it's important that their viewers uh, hear from the other side. Um, And we are focused on the facts and we are going to bring out those facts. 
Um, I think there are many different ways of doing that. This whole thing appears to be premised on a completely debunked conspiracy that was debunked in the first impeachment by the Senate, by the U.S. senators, Republican senators, by the Ukrainian president about this Burisma nonsense when Joe Biden's only official action related to Hunter Biden actually was bad for Hunter Biden's business when that prosecutor general, who was, quote, under control, uh, according to Devin Archer, their new star witness, who's uh, Hunter Biden's partner and also on the Burisma board, uh, when he was fired. So uh, this has been uh, completely debunked by anyone who has any objective interest in the facts. And it's our job to point that out. And we will do that tomorrow. Good for you for going on to Fox, because I agree with you. I think that's you got to go to the, you got to go to the center of the controversy, if you will. I, we'll see if they let me on. <laughs> um, I got to ask you, you're in the House and as it stands, it looks like we are barreling towards a government shutdown. There are some workers who are deemed essential who will continue to go to work. Are, are the staffers on the oversight committee who are running these, as you say, sham hearings, are they going to be deemed essential workers? In a true remarkable fashion, it appears as if the House Republicans are going to deem their impeachment investigators as essential workers when millions of Americans uh, working in federal jobs will not be paid and even more millions will not get federal benefits during this shutdown. The fact that we're having an impeachment inquiry hearing two days before the House Republicans are leading us to a shutdown is shocking, but it is a reflection of one thing. There is one person, a puppeteer down in Mar-a-Lago, who is controlling this extreme right MAGA party. And he wants Joe Biden impeached. He wanted it in 2019 with this insane investigation. He wants it now for his political benefit. And he wants the government to shut down, to, to make a distraction from all of his own legal problems. He is pulling the strings right now, make no mistake about it. And it's why we are barreling headlong into these both of these ridiculous uh, situations. Wow. Members of the Armed Services, Department of Commerce, cabinet, cabinet agencies not going to be working, but the inquisitors looking to impeach President Biden deemed essential workers. That says it all. Congressman Dan Goldman, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Still to come this evening, a day of reckoning is coming for members of the Trump administration who will be forced to answer on the record for the first time about their roles in separating migrant children from their families. Plus, a sitting U.S. senator pleaded not guilty in federal court today, but more and more of his colleagues are calling for him to step down. What happens now? The great Steve Kornacki joins me coming right up. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync... 
things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This was the scene this morning outside the federal courthouse in New York, where New Jersey senior Democratic Senator Bob Menendez was arraigned on charges of corruption and bribery. Senator Menendez and his wife Nadine pleaded not guilty to all charges, and both were released on bond. The indictment against Menendez includes detailed allegations that the senator peddled influence for the benefit of the government of Egypt, as well as several New Jersey businessmen, in exchange for gifts ranging from envelopes of cash to stacks of gold bullion to a new Mercedes. Now, so far, 30 members of the Senate have called for Menendez to step down, and all 30 of them are members of Senator Menendez's own party. Not a single Senate Republican has called on Senator Menendez to resign. Joining me now to discuss why that is, is America's sweetheart, MSNBC's Steve Kornacki. Steve, so obviously there's kind of like a precedent that Republicans don't want to set about taking out potentially corrupt sitting office holders. But there's also a cold, hard political calculation here, right? Can you talk to me a little bit more about why Republicans think they have a shot if Menendez stays in the seat? Well, if, if Menendez were to refuse to resign, to continue in that position and actually get the Democratic nomination for another term, and that, that is a long shot. Let's, yeah. let's put that mildly, but not impossible if he, if he does run and certain things break their way. Republicans have not won a Senate race in New Jersey in more than 50 years. Yes. 1972 is the last time. Um, they were very close in 2002, when there was a Democratic incumbent, Bob Torricelli, who had narrowly avoided federal prosecution, who'd been reprimanded by the Senate Ethics Committee and had fallen double digits behind five weeks before Election Day, Democrats yanked him out of the race. They needed a state Supreme Court ruling to do it, put in a former Senator Frank Lautenberg, and they won the race. So Republicans, I think, looking at New Jersey, feel like if Bob Menendez somehow is the nominee for another term next year, they could beat him. That could be the natural ingredient to beat him. Short of that, however, it's very hard to see a Republican winning in New Jersey. Well, it's so all of the calculations here are so fraught because the Democrats hold the majority by one seat. And weirdly, Bob Menendez seems like he has a lot of leverage here, right? He doesn't have to leave. Chuck Schumer has still not come out and said, you need to step down. And the Democrats at first came out and said, you know, you need to go are were the most vulnerable Democrats in 2024. Yeah, you can see why Democrats, especially at the U.S. Senate level, but also in New Jersey, don't want Menendez around. In New Jersey, they've got state legislative elections coming up in a matter of weeks. There's fear among Democrats there that this is going to hurt them in those legislative elections. In the U.S. Senate, there's a fear, obviously, it's going to hurt senators running for re-election next year by tarnishing the party brand. It's going to hurt, potentially, they fear, at the presidential level, where it's going to give, if Republicans do nominate Donald Trump, it's going to give Trump and Republicans something they can point to and say, hey, Democrats, you know, you're coming after us saying we're the corrupt party. Look what you're, look what you got over there. So you see the incentives there. But Menendez, remember, survived the federal corruption prosecution just a few years ago, got reelected. He did so with basically the full and total support of the Democratic Party back yeah. then. And I, I think he is truly, I think, shocked at the breadth yeah. of, of the Democrats who have come out, including Cory Booker, who, you know, Cory Booker, his colleague from New Jersey, the last time around, Cory Booker showed up on the first day of that trial and sat right behind Bob Menendez in the courthouse as a show of support. And now Cory Booker is calling for him to, to leave. I think by our count, 30 Democrats in the Senate Democratic Caucus have called for him to leave office, to step down. 
Do you think at this point, I mean, like, what is the calculation here if you're Bob Menendez? Is there anyone who can say anything at this point who will convince him he has been defiant in every public statement he's made? He pleaded not guilty to the charges this morning. We were talking about this in the break. He's going to be speaking to Democrats behind, I think, closed doors tomorrow. But is your expectation that he hangs in there Certainly. indefinitely? For the, for the short term, yeah. He's a proud man. He's a strong-willed man. He's somebody who did what a lot of folks thought was impossible in the first place. He beat a federal corruption charge just a few years ago and got reelected. And so I think he thought when this broke, when this when this uh, indictment came down earlier this week, he thought based on what had happened last time that his party would give him room to maneuver here because of what he'd gotten through and survived the last time. So I think he's genuinely not just surprised, but I think he's angered. By what his by this public reaction from his party today. And I suspect, I don't know, but I, I, I suspect at least initially here, the message from him is going to be, go ahead, call for me to resign all you want. You can't ultimately do anything about it, but I could keep this seat and I could make things in a 5149 Senate, <coughs> I could make things pretty difficult for you. So I, that, that might be the initial posture. Now, whether there's a really a path for him beyond, say, serving out the term and, and actually a path toward running for seeking and winning renomination in the party next year is, is a separate question. But in the short term, yeah, they, they can't get him out. They can call for him. But if he wants to stay, he can stay. Wow. The ripple effects. Unbelievable. Steve Kornacki, great to see you. You We will be right back. Have you been directed to separate parents from children as a method of deterrence of undocumented immigration? I have not been directed to do that for purposes of deterrence, no. This administration did not create a policy of separating families at the border. That was President Trump's Homeland Security Secretary, Kirsten Nielsen, in 2018, giving the official line on family separations. And she said it over and over. As Border Patrol separated thousands of families who crossed the southern border into the United States at the direction of the Trump administration, Secretary Nielsen said to the House, to the Senate, to a room full of White House reporters, no, there is no policy of separating families at the border. Never mind the images and sounds of toddlers and babies crying for their mothers and fathers after being taken from them in the name of deterrence. Attorney General Jeff Sessions denied the existence of a family separation policy as well. The American people don't like the idea that we're separating families. Uh, We never really intended to do that. Now, since those public denials, we have learned from exhaustive reporting by outlets, including The Atlantic, that Attorney General Jeff Sessions pushed for the family separation policy. He encouraged its enforcement. The New York Times reported that Sessions once told a room full of U.S. attorneys who questioned his orders to prosecute adults who crossed the border since it meant separating families. Sessions told those attorneys, quote, we need to take away children. And Nielsen, for her part, literally signed the zero tolerance policy into being. She signed the memo to prosecute border crossers, knowing that the children would be taken away from their parents. To this day, about 1,000 of those children remain separated from their families. And for years, migrant families have been suing the U.S. government for taking away their children. Yet so far, 
the officials who helped design and orchestrate and oversee that policy, officials like Kirsten Nielsen and Jeff Sessions, they have not testified on the record in any of these cases. But this week, we learned that is about to change. In a lawsuit involving three families who say their children, ages 6, 11, and 13, were separated from them, a federal magistrate judge just ruled that former Secretary Nielsen and former Attorney General Sessions will be deposed. The judge wrote that the two officials have unique personal knowledge of their own intent in making the zero-tolerance policy, rendering their testimony in this case essential. Now, the date for their depositions has yet to be determined, but for the very first time, Trump administration officials will be forced to acknowledge the family separation policy and explain their role in it. And they'll have to do so under oath in a court of law. Still to come this evening, as the first of Trump's co-defendants in Georgia get ready for their day in court, we're going to take a look at the latest legal wranglings, including what may be a preview of Trump's defense strategy. That's next. Tonight, the judge presiding over the federal criminal case against Donald Trump and his attempts to subvert the 2020 election, Judge Tanya Chutkin, denied Trump's request that she recuse herself from that case. We are still awaiting her ruling on special counsel Jack Smith's request for a limited gag order to be imposed on Trump. Meanwhile, prosecutors in the Georgia case against Trump and 18 other defendants are raising concerns about the defense. Today, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis asked the judge to issue a protective order on discovery materials, citing concerns over previous instances of doxing. The DA noted both in this filing and over the weekend that her own personal information was leaked, including the home addresses of multiple family members. Joining me now is Melissa Redmond, former Fulton County Deputy District Attorney. Melissa, thanks for being here. I now officially think an MSNBC contributor. I am. Thank you. Um, first off, the request for a protective order. Um, discovery materials have already been shared. Mm-hmm. Is it strange or in any way unusual to ask for a protective order after the materials have already been shared with the defense? It is. You would expect that protective order to have been filed when the discovery was turned over, especially considering we saw in the hearing where they talked about, I haven't gotten discovery yet. I'm giving it to you today. We haven't gotten to the deadline yet Yeah. Um, that the state talked about needing a protective order, needing to protect that information. And that was almost a month ago. Yeah. So uh, we saw the maybe it was the protective order for the jurors that may have prompted them to remember that they didn't actually file (laughs) the the protective order for the discovery. Um, There may have been something that came out that was only in discovery and wasn't publicly available that could have prompted them to say, well, we really need to file this order to protect any further information from being disseminated. What is clear is that D.A. Willis wants to bubble wrap as much as possible, given the unprecedented nature of threats and harassment. She and her family members protect, you know, grand jury members, the doxing. It's extraordinary. Um, I mean, I would assume there's obviously a risk in asking for a protective order after the material's already gone out. Right. Right. 
Well, it's, it will still protect the material that hasn't been made publicly available yeah. yet. Right. And so there hasn't been a lot that's been disclosed that we know of from any of the parties involved. And so it will still protect that in the individuals. Judge McAfee can say, well, everything that you've gotten from discovery, keep it to yourself. It's only for you to prepare for your defense. It's not for public dissemination. It's not for you to comment on the credibility of the witnesses, who the witnesses are. Yeah. We don't want them to be harassed or intimidated, um, affecting their testimony at the eventual trial. When we talk about some of the witness intimidation and the evidence at hand, um, Rolling Stone is reporting, and I will just flag that these are some unnamed sources, that Trump is hoping to suppress the the submission of the infamous phone call uh, with Brad Raffensperger as part of the evidence in the the in D.A. Willis's case. Um, he's effectively saying, and this again is according to Rolling Stone's reporting, which NBC News has not independently confirmed, that he's saying the taping of that phone call was illegal, mm-hmm. that he Florida, uh, th- there was some taping in Florida and in Florida, it's a two party state, which effectively means the taper and the tapee both have to give their consent. Right. Is there a world in which Fonnie Willis won't be able to use the Brad Raffensperger phone call where Trump asks him to find eleven thousand seven hundred ninety votes? Possibly. So if the court does determine that that phone call was unlawfully taped, it was a violation of Trump's expectation of privacy, then they could um, the court could determine that it shouldn't be used against him. A couple of things that the. DA could argue, one, the state was not a party to that recording. Right. Georgia, the state was not doing that. It was a third party recording. So if you think of someone on their own acting um, as a a party to a criminal conspiracy, conspiracy, and then one of them tells uh, or one of them turns over evidence of that conspiracy to the state, does that mean that the state can't use it? Hmm. The other thing is that even in Florida, you have to have an expectation of privacy. So if you that conversation takes place in a circumstance where the person doesn't have an expectation of privacy, um, then the state could argue that it's an exception to that two-party rule in Florida, if in fact it was recorded in Florida. The expectation of privacy, I would assume you expect a phone call to be private when it's you and me right. chatting. But if it's you, me, and like seven campaign officials, a couple lawyers, and some people down in the Georgia Secretary of State's office, exactly. including like paralegals and whatnot, right. is there an expectation of privacy there? That would be the argument. That would be the argument the state would make, that there was no expectation of privacy. So even if the conversation was recorded in Florida, a two-party state, then the state would argue they should still be allowed to use it as tri- in, in evidence in the trial. Um, I got to ask, just because we're still waiting to hear about whether Jeff Jeffrey Clark and the three fake electors are going to be allowed to move their case to federal court. Mm-hmm. How do you where where's the strength of that movement at this point as you see it? Well, it's it's interesting because we thought that Meadows had the strongest argument. Yeah. And it's been about a week or so since that case was heard by Judge Jones. Um, and so I think everybody anticipated that his ruling would come down a lot faster. And we're about at the same time frame, a few more days. And I think we'll be right about that 10 days um, that it took him to deliver his decision in the Meadows case. Yeah. But I think it is arguing that I'm an alternate elector and not a fake elector. And I was performing a federal function makes it a federal makes me a federal agent is a long shot. Uh, Long shot. Okay, from your your mouth to uh, the judge's ears, Melissa Redman. (laughs) Welcome and thank Thank you for your time. That is our show for tonight. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. 
Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. <laughs> 